This week on Semi-Intellectual Musings. We start talking about concussions in sports by looking at Don Cherry and Aaron Hernandez. Matt tries to teach us some neuroscience. Phil wants us to listen to lounge music, and I try to stop saying, absolutely. But absolutely failed. Woman, woman, tell me your name. Let me have my life reclaimed. All I have to do is press record and make it a podcast. Yeah, you see the red light on the screen, and uh, I know it's go time. It's go. Yeah. How so, are you doing, Matt? Pretty good, man. How was your week? Uh, my week has been pretty good. I uh, I had to proctor an exam. That's uh, exciting. That's exciting. It's one of the most exciting things that you can do as a grad student is proctoring an exam. Was it the full three hours? It was a two-hour exam, luckily, oh. and we were out of there. I had everything organized. We were out of there five minutes after the two hours. Uh, so there's three other teaching assistants and myself there, uh, 200 students. Uh, it was a criminology exam in a big gymnasium. Was it in the gym? It yeah. was in the gym. Yeah, that's that's brutal. Like, as an undergrad, because we, we must have all been there at one point, I don't... Like, I'm trying to think back if I ever wrote exams in a giant auditorium or not. Oh, I remember doing them. Yeah? How how did that affect your uh, test execution? Like, how did you do on those exams, just being um, in that environment? Because yeah. I always think about it. Because, I mean, you, when you're proctoring, you got, like, three hours to just walk up and down those roads. Yeah. And um, you start thinking about things pretty deeply. Yeah, for sure. Um, how did I do in gymnasium exams? Probably okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would probably sit closer to the front, to be honest with you, not to see like the the sea of heads in front of me and people squirmishing in their seats because they can't remember stuff looking around. Um, That's a good tip. What What other tips can we pass on to any uh, yeah, young undergrads who are, uh, got an exam like that? Upcoming? Well, I don't know. That if might actually be helpful. I don't know if it's a tip, but for me, um, I have to say, don't take off your shoes when you're going into an exam. Um, uh, so, I, this was Monday. Um, I don't, I don't know. It wasn't a very warm day out, but it was spring and this mm. fellow, uh, decides to walk in and get settled in by taking off his shoes and socks. And, you know, that's fine, I guess, but people around him weren't too happy. Really? Like you can actually, like an audible smell came no, off of his yeah, feet? <laughs> yeah. And one person has to move. Oh, really? Like mid exam was like, I can't take this anymore. So oh, we had wow. to move her. Wow. Uh, like, you know, and I don't think he noticed he was in his zone. Um, well, I, I think it's like, I don't know, it's probably been like psychologically proven in like some sort of crazy uh, test from the 50s involving monkeys in some way. Um, but <laughs> there's my lead in. Um, but uh, I know that uh, the sense of smell, um, you notice a change in the smell landscape. So a guy like a gym smells a certain way and you're kind of prepared for it. But um, somebody taking off their shoes and socks makes you notice that smell. And that's all, like, you you can't notice anything else because the sense of smell is one of our most powerful senses, right? Yeah, for sure. And um, that's why farmers, they don't notice the smell of cow manure. But when you drive through the country, it's all you can smell. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, how was your week? <laughs> Fascinating. Um, pretty good. Um, I went to a rather famous uh, book fair, uh, used books. Um, oh, do tell us more. Uh, it's very exciting. I, um, I'm self-diagnosed bibliophiliac, so I, um, I you, have an obsession with you books. You meet the nine criteria of bibliophiliac. Yeah, absolutely. We should post that someday. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know if that exists. I can try to, th- I can try to think of nine. Oh, do you think it's in the DSM, bibliophilia? No. No? No. Mm. Anyway, anyway. Something, to, something to Google later. Um, but yeah, no, I went to this uh, this crazy book fair. It was um, maybe like four rooms uh, stacked with uh, with books that are they're all like one dollar or two dollars. So you just like take these uh, reusable bags and just load it up. So I went with my buddy Evan, and uh, we just loaded up on books, and uh, it was very exciting. Any good finds? Uh, yeah, a number of good finds. Um, I got a biography on Foucault, uh, with you in mind. I uh, I saw the beard and I was like, Ooh, Phil would like this one. Your beard. Oh, not because yeah, Foucault was uh, a clean shaven all around kind of. Oh yeah. Yeah. He was like cue ball. Right. Yeah. So um, the Foucault biography, what else? Uh, I got um, random, like, kind of classics. Like, I uh, I read uh, Mark Twain's, uh, Mark Twain's, obviously, uh, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer recently, okay. just because I've never read Mark Twain before. Yeah. Uh, so I got The Yankee from Connecticut and King Arthur's Court or whatever that book is called. Okay. Have you ever heard of that? I'm not a Twain. Uh... He's a really good writer, man. I, I recommend yeah. picking it up. He, he can spin a yarn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like I've uh, read some things from Twain, but I'm not—I I don't know—is well versed. No, no, I mean I'm I've only—I uh, only read thirty uh, percent of uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, and I'm like, okay, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but <laughs> just a, f- a few too many uh, end bombs in that one. For right. Liking. Yeah. Um, but uh, the thing that I wanted to talk to you about at this book fair, um, I don't know. Have you been to a used book? like sale recently not as big as the one that you're talking about okay so it was like loaded with these people on their cell phones like dipping and diving at your feet because they had like the extra books underneath the tables so the top the ones on the tabletop have been like slammed through by these people and then they were going down underneath so it was already like all the tables were like just a little bit too close together so everyone was like shoulders tucked in like sorry excuse me excuse me sorry it was like the most canadian thing ever everyone's apologizing to each other right yeah yeah, um but then these like super aggressive people on their cell phones and i look at finally look at one of their phones and they're like scanning barcodes on every single book and it tells them the um like online price of each book and they're just like bam 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 just going through these books under the table and like you know captain concussion over here um is like you know watching his step right he doesn't want to like topple right um and uh yeah i just i sort of left like really pissed off like oh. it, it pissed me off in some way it kind of ruined my day so they were there as resellers they were trying to get cheap books and then resell them yeah online probably yeah and the guy <laughs> i even saw the guy who owns like my favorite like uh, storefront used bookstore um in ottawa here all books uh, all books they're a free plug for all books um yeah you're so not affiliated saw... with all books in any way no he uh he, yeah he couldn't afford us we're too expensive <laughs> <laughs> um uh. but yeah no so it was just sort of like it was a really aggressive atmosphere but on the plus side before we went evan jumps in the car and he's like you hungry i'm like hell yeah and he's like you want some spring rolls i'm like that's exactly what i wanted because for the lot for the previous four days i had been hardcore 
cravings, spring rolls, like the deep fried ones and you dip in the little plum sauce. And he comes out, he went, took me to this place that's uh, like an Asian grocery store okay. um, in Chinatown. Right. Um, we In Ottawa, we have like a place called Chinatown, if you're not from here. Um, it's like so, two, three yeah. blocks large. Yeah. It's very small. Yeah. And, um, and they were like 25 cents a piece. Sweet. Yeah. They're amazing. Like piping hot at like 10 in the morning. Breakfast spring rolls. Highly recommend. Fresh spring rolls. Absolutely. Great. And that's what I did. Well, so, you know, it doesn't sound like a too bad a week that we had. No, man. I bought like I bought like 30 books. Like I'm going to bring uh, half of them over and we can pick through them next time. Amazing. Yeah. I look forward to it. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> well, uh, welcome everyone. Uh, you're with us on Semi- Semi-Intellectual Musings. This is a podcast hosted by myself, Philip Primo. And myself, Matt Sanderson. It's a podcast on social sciences, humanities, and arts. We do it uh, the storytelling way. We do it the review of books way. Um, the podcast is intended to provide a platform to publicize social science and academic work, uh, but also as a sounding board for those looking to get into social science, humanities, or arts. Absolutely. Um, and from time to time, <laughs> we made a pact with each other that I would try to stop saying absolutely, and Phil wouldn't be able to say whimsical again. So I already uh, stepped on myself there. All right. Well, what, what what are we doing here, Matt? Let's try to figure out a way to, to, to tell our audience what we're doing. On today's episode? In general. So, oh, so we we've, we, general? we've done this a bunch of times, and each time we find a new way to explain what this podcast is about. That's that's true because like right now I'm uh, on the spot and I'm like, what is this podcast? So that's probably why we're uh, trying to find a way to define it. I also want to try to have um, people kind of. I'm reluctant to use the term activist, but people out in the world um, doing uh, civil action, let's say, and changing lives. Um, and sometimes they could be academics, and I I hope we can have academics who uh, bridge both of those worlds, the ivory tower and the uh, the so-called real world. Um, so I don't know, maybe the podcast is about that. Right. So, uh, one thing that this podcast does try to do is bring the published world, uh, in line with our lived realities, uh, uh to make, uh, you know, the published world, uh, more accessible, um, to make the published world uh, a little less scary for some people. Mm. Um, but then also to revisit some stuff that maybe you've read, um, in the past and you'd like to hear us talk about it. Absolutely. And I like, um, again, whimsical. I get two absolutely. I haven't said whimsical. Uh, I've said it twice now. You've said absolutely like three times. Now. <laughs> oh, I want to say it again. All right. Well, as you can tell, we don't take ourselves too seriously. And this podcast doesn't try to take itself too seriously. Um, it is uh, composed of a few segments. The first segment is the intro. Um we're about 10 minutes into that. They usually last about 10 to 14 minutes. Um, after that, Matt and I will review some articles, uh, books, works of fiction um, that we've come across, provide you with some of our commentary. We will always be honest in what we talk about. So if we like it, if we don't, our commitment to you is to give you our honest opinion about these published works. So today we're going to... Uh actually talk about uh, my research uh, on concussions. I brought in, uh, I think, four articles. Um, one that we're going to read pretty in-depth uh, from The Gauntlet, 
um, which is a periodical uh, written by the sister of a WHL hockey player. It's the Western Hockey League, uh, so it's Junior A Hockey, um, who uh, her brother had a number of concussions, and it's her experiences um, being beside him while he was recovering. Um, I also brought in an article that talks about neuroplasticity, so that's uh, kind of part of the um, the current um, trend in in concussion research. Um, it relates to how the brain recovers, regrows, but some of the problems that um, come with actually the brain recovering. Um, so it relates to dementia and Alzheimer's and CTE, uh, some things people might be familiar with. Uh, we also have an article on uh, uh, female concussions, uh, particularly high school um, high school athletes, and I think that's a understudied and underreported um, um, aspect of concussions is uh, concussions in female athletes, uh, just like most uh, dynamics in female athletics. And then we're going to watch uh, some videos, uh, some uh, Rock'em Sock'em Hockey, perhaps, uh, Don Cherry. We're going to look at Eric Lindros' concussions and Sidney Crosby. And uh, then we're going to come back with some recommendations. Absolutely. I don't know if you got that, <laughs> you got, got you. <laughs> that was intentional. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much, Phil. You can reach us uh, at on Twitter, at the underscore sim underscore pod the sim pod uh you can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com and you'll be able to find the podcast very soon on the sim.podbean.com that's the sim.podbean.com we look forward to hearing uh your comments uh, we look forward to hearing what you think about the show so don't don't be shy email us tweet at us subscribe to the podcast follow us on twitter um so let's get on with the show let's start the show today we'll be talking about concussions and concussions and violence in sports being in my 30s, having played hockey, rugby, baseball, uh, football in high school, I, like many men and women my age, uh, have had concussions. Um, I know of three. One knocked me out cold. Uh, I was taken with an ambulance off the ice uh, for one as well. Uh, my chin was busted open from a kick to the face playing rugby. Um, and my knees have been shattered a few times playing baseball. Um, but before we get into sports and head injuries, Matt, your experience of concussions is a bit different. Um, you want to tell us about that? Uh, it's different, I guess, just in the number of concussions I've had. Uh, my first concussion was when I was 14. I'm 34 now. Um, so 20 years ago, I guess. Huh? Happy anniversary, Maddie. A concussion anniversary. <laughs> concussion anniversary. I should get myself a present. Get myself a bottle of scotch. Um, my first concussion was when I was 14. That was back in like 1997. Um, and since then, I've had at least 18. One, eight. Wow. Yeah. And um, probably like a, a dozen what I call bell ringers, where I'm just sort of glancing blows in the head uh, that kind of put me on the couch for a couple of days. Um, so are, are yeah. these from sports? Uh, some of them are, um, I'd say, uh, nine are from sports 
And uh, the rest came from either, like, uh, I've been in three car accidents, uh, a really bad, couple of really bad falls, um, got slapped in the face uh, coming out of a pub. We can talk about that if you like. Um, <laughs> and we should talk about that because it makes me sound like a jerk. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then, yeah, it's just, they sort of rack up. Like, one thing about concussions is after you get, like, maybe two or three, it's really a lot easier to get them. And any more that you get, it becomes easier and easier. But the dynamic there is people think, like, oh, well, then if you say you have 18 concussions, like, how many of those are quote-unquote real? Right. Yeah, so it's um, living with a concussion history like I do, it's a constant state of legitimizing your injury, I would say. And uh, honestly, it's um, I think there's a great deal of stigma associated with it still. And, um, for example, like... Uh, you might have told me a couple of years ago that you've had concussions, but I've sort of, re like you told me again, like a week ago, and I was like, holy cow, Phil's had like a number of concussions, but like we never really like, like had a deep like concussion conversation. So figured we could put a couple of microphones in front of us and mm -hmm. uh, have that deep concussion conversation. Um, I mean, my experience of concussions uh, has been through primarily sports. Uh, it's been, generally player player contact so my head hits another player my head hits uh, some physical object on the field like a foot uh mm. getting a ball in the head that kind of stuff mm. but um you were talking a little bit more about almost daily concussions um outside of sports uh, daily concussions how do you mean Sorry. Well, daily life concussions no like a car accident I can see, but uh, falling? Oh, I see. Yeah, like in my everyday life. Yeah. yeah. Like I had this like terrible slip and fall, like a like a senior. Yeah. Um, I was walking to my favorite coffee shop, uh, another free plug, Ideal Coffee in Ottawa. Stop by, they roast their own beans. Um, and it was one of those like March days where it uh, the ice had melted the night before, but then there had been like one inch of snowfall and then refreezing underneath. So I didn't even see but i was on like a slanted like 30 degree like like someone's driveway or whatever walking on the sidewalk and my right foot took out my left foot and i slammed down like super hard on my elbow and then sort of came to my senses on my back so i must have hit my elbow then onto my back um but like most people think with concussions it's like you get punched to the face you take a soccer ball to the head. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, they something people need to know is they do uh, come from falls like that, where it's like almost a shockwave that shoots through your body up into your brain. Um, another thing about concussions, just from a medical side, um, it's no longer thought that concussions are caused by the brain hitting the skull. That's that's like old-fashioned sort of okay. um, theory. Um, now it's uh, something people can Google. It's uh, called diffuse axonal injury. Uh, oh, that's a lot of words. Tell us about that. What, <laughs> what is it? D-A-I. Um, basically, like, the nerve cell has, is like, it's got a connection on one end. Um, then there's the axon in the middle. Um, I should Google this before I start talking in detail about it. But basically, it's like the nerve cell splitting in the middle. Okay. And that's what, um, that's why concussions don't show up on MRIs and CT oh. scans, because the damage is interior inside the brain. That's why the uh, thing called CTE, and I'll, I'll uh, chronic traumatic encephalos 
Okay. <laughs> Let's yeah. go with that. Close enough. Um, but if you Google CTE, it'll come up. Um, that is damage in the interior of the brain, um, this diffuse axonal injury that causes a, they call it a plaque buildup, and that's why it shows as like black discoloration when the football players die and they cut their brains With open. O- over time. Yeah, yeah, over time. And they associate CTE with, you know, Alzheimer's-like uh, conditions, you know, it's, it's basically um, classified as a neurodegenerative uh, condition. Right. Yeah. So, uh, cheery topic. Yeah. Want to take it from there, Phil? Well, um, <laughs> I mean, th- that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a bucket do. full. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff dealing with the brain. Mm. Uh, but how has been your other physical manifestations post concussion, or like even since 1997? Have you seen any changes in your f- physical? Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, So after maybe the, I'd say the fifth concussion, um, it was within five years of my first one. So it was about a concussion a year in there. Um, It was a really bad car accident where I got rear-ended coming out of my driveway. Um, And I'll spare you the gory details, but uh, it was pretty ugly. And uh, Ever since then, I've had some form of daily symptoms. I call them symptoms. Um, the concussion manifestation, as you say. What do those look like? Um, well, early on, it was just like fuzzy thinking, difficulty concentrating, um, a little bit of sensitivity to light. Um, but with each subsequent concussion, these daily symptoms became more numerous, like in type, you know, the different types of symptoms, and more intense, like in terms... I use the term pain, but it's not really pain. It's more like symptom intensity. Um, so I have daily symptoms uh, that range from like extreme light sensitivity. So Phil knows I'm always wearing a baseball hat, right? And yeah. I would get uh, prescription sunglasses if I can afford them. Um, but um, so sensitivity to light, cognitive fatigue, difficulty thinking, difficulty articulating my words, even though we have a podcast now. So I'm hoping that this is actually going to be a bit of a therapy on the language side. Mm. Um, and there's just numerous, like I'll, like there's like 30 that I can sort of list, list off. Like if, a, if this was a neurologist appointment, like like it, it takes a while for me to just go through the, my um, history as well as like the, the, my symptoms. Wow. You know? So the result of this, like, is that, you know, because I've, the first one was in 97 and the most recent one was actually Easter Sunday. I smashed my head painting my baby's room. Um, so that was, wow. that was cheery, like pretty hard. I almost lifted like the shelving, like unit off the wall. Um, and so it's been quite the uh, journey, man. It's, uh, I've seen a change in uh, medicine and a slower change in psychology. Um, but I've also had just like some horrific encounters with the medical community as well. So, Okay, well, I think... Um, so all those personal stories, which are... Like, I still find them fascinating. Matt mm-hmm. tells me uh, his ongoing daily battles uh, mm-hmm. quite often every time we speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it really interesting not, not, not having lived through it to hear Matt speak about it. Um, but let's try to bridge... Uh, your personal experience, my personal experience, our listeners' personal experience with some of the stuff um, that's been published out there. Um, you brought in a couple articles. Um, tell us about the first one. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I had this um, 
I had this article sent to me on uh, through a listserv, actually, that I have sent up into my email. It's um, like the Brain Injury Association of Canada. Um has a pretty good listserv, so if anyone's interested in concussion research... Are um, you able to uh, post that link up for us in the episode description? Absolutely. I'll get Phil to do that, because I don't really know how to do that. <laughs> All right. I'll, uh, so the link for that listserv will go up in the art, um, episode description. Sorry, Absolutely. So this article was published in The Gauntlet, and it's by Emily Medland... Uh, Marchen, Marchen, M-A-R-C-H-E-N, um, and it's um, about her brother who played uh, junior hockey in the WHL, it's the Western Hockey League, um, and junior A is like the highest level of um, junior hockey, basically. Um, it's known as quite a rough league, I think, the WHL like, is, is known for yep. the body checks and the fights and stuff like this. Um, so this article is a combination of her experiences watching her cut um, brother get concussions, um, and recovering from them um, while also combining updated medical information and research, um, including a really interesting-sounding researcher from the University of Calgary, whose last name is Brydell. Um, he's doing a qualitative study on concussions that I'm actually really interested in because my research was a qualitative study of concussions with athletes, so it's kind of right in line. Um, so there's a lot in this article. I encourage you all to read it. Um, maybe we can just hit on some of the yeah, key points. Yeah, what are some of the key points that, yeah. uh, she brings up? Um, well, she starts off with, um, mentioning the lawsuit that was filed by former players against the National Hockey League. Um, it was filed in 2013. And then, um, the first, uh, junior, um, hockey lawsuit was filed in 2014, just one year later. Um, so this kind of puts it in, in time. You know? could, could you give us a brief description about that uh, NHL lawsuit? Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, launched by 10 former uh, NHL players. Um, and uh, I'm not even sure. I, I feel like it was settled um, last year, 2016 or 15. Um, but people can Google and learn more about it. It's um, it's interesting to see how um, professional sports leagues uh, approach concussions because there's all sorts of liability involved. Um, but what's interesting is in all the research with concussions, it's really professional sports that drives not just medical research but also the public discourse on concussions. So she uses the lawsuit as an indication that the wider cultural perception of concussions has changed right around this time. Um, in my research, I pointed to Sidney Crosby, who got his first concussion in January of 2011, and then got another one uh, shortly thereafter, and had this very public um, recovery um, from his concussions where he was daily going to, and doing all these experimental treatments. And it was like, it's almost like the royal family came to Canada and they're following their, his every move. Um, so that was almost like Canadian, the Canadian public like was right there side by side with Sidney Crosby as he was learning about his own injury. And the rest of the public was learning about concussions almost for the first time. As I said, my first one was in 97. I've had a number of doctors who are just like, they simply don't be don't believe in chronic post concussion syndrome, right? Yeah. So that's that's bringing back to the stigma that you mentioned earlier. Absolutely, and this <laughs> there's the another one. Um, the stigma is brought up in this article. That's one of the main themes about it. Um, one of the uh, indicators of this of the culture 
of violence in professional sports, especially hockey, um, is this website called hockeyfights.com. And what's that? It's literally what you think it would be. It's um, a website with a whole bunch of hockey fights, hits, um, just violence. It's like um, it's like a whatever, like a correlator of hockey violence. So it's meant to be celebratory. It's a it's a good thing that. There's... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely it's a celebration. It's not like um, like the Citizens Action Group against hockey violence by any means. I see. Um, but the thing I really liked about this article is that she included a lot of quotes from her brother. And there was when I was doing my research, there was a real lack of what we call qualitative um, studies on concussion. Um, can you actually explain the difference between qualitative and quantitative, as you'd see? Because that's something that comes up in sociology a lot. Yeah. Um, my my reading of it is uh, qualitative studies um, tend to have smaller sample sizes, but they don't necessarily have to. Uh, qualitative research um, studies also try to go into the depth questions. So it's not a question of how many um, which is a, a question of quantity, but it becomes more a question of um, quality. Um, it's a, it becomes a question of finding out the fine-grained details um, in research questions, whereas a quantitative study can have larger sample sizes, and they're looking uh, for, generally, they're, they'll be looking for some statistics, uh, and they'll be looking to generalize um, whereas a qualitative study study focuses on the particular. So, I mean, those are, yeah. gen, again, generalizations yeah. about the two streams, but, you know, they, they don't have to live in opposition, but they're, they tend to be presented as opposites. Hmm. And um, one of the, um, a quote that she includes that I thought was actually kind of interesting, she went to Hockey Canada's website, so that's the national organizing body for hockey in Canada, um, it's kind of a big deal here in Canada, as you can imagine. Um, but their definition that they had on their website of what a concussion was, was from, I'd say, like the mid-90s. It's, um, quote, um, they've worked hard to eliminate um, head injuries and head contact from the game. But, quote, concussions are injuries to the brain that are characterized by an altered state of consciousness. So the defining thing there is an altered state of consciousness. Yeah. And that usually means in layman's terms, I suppose, uh, lay person's terms, uh, uh, means being knocked out. And even when you were describing your concussions, Phil, um, you're like, one of them I was knocked out for because yeah. the medical community saw being knocked out as a sign of severity right. with concussions. Um, but I also just wanted to read the updated um, definition yeah, of concussion, if you don't mind, because I think it's important. Absolutely. Um, at the time of a concussion, there is a force transmitted to the head. It can be a direct blow or transmission of force through the body. So that's like a fall. Um, a variety of different symptoms occur, the most common of which are headache, typically followed by dizziness. But there are other symptoms that can occur as well, which include difficulty concentrating, difficulty with memory, sleep, irritability, and some individuals who have neck pain. Sometimes the symptoms don't arrive right away, but they can come after time. That definition sounds drastically different than the first one that you read. Absolutely. And <laughs> another. Um, and I witnessed this firsthand through my encounters with the medical community. Like I saw 
um, the changing perspectives. I was fortunate to have a family doctor that I had since I was two years old who actually was the like organizational physician for the minor hockey league, um, Surrey minor hockey. And uh, he was ahead of the curb on concussions from like the early nineties on. And the reason why is because I think his son and daughter, but maybe just his son uh, played hockey in that league. Okay. And I'm not sure if his son ever got a concussion. I've never asked, but he saw concussions all the time. And then he saw them in his, in his clinical space. So he was ahead of the curb. Um, so yeah, take my, but what you're saying is this is a minority of practicing, physicians it's still a minority but you see it more with um specialists who don't um who maybe they were trained in like the 70s or 80s and their education is just out of date and for whatever reason they don't get it updated this is something that the doctors i interviewed in my research mentioned is like sometimes they're just simply too busy there's a lot of conferences to go to being a general practitioner a family physician is quite demanding because you have to know like something about everything. Yeah. Um, so there's sometimes just not time, but sometimes it's like willful, not negligence, but willful, like, you know, whatever it's willful right, <laughs> on their yeah. part. So okay. um, I find that nowadays it's when I go talk to neurologists or if I talk to just an older physician who just doesn't care anymore, basically. Mm. Um, so, um, there, she also made reference to, um, to Don Cherry in this, and this whole perception of masculinity and sucking it up basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when you were talking about, uh, some stigma around it and, uh, the inability to really, uh, converse with, uh, doctors or converse outside of the medical community about your experiences, the first thing that came to mind was, uh, Don Cherry. Uh, because when I think of Don Cherry, I think of someone who you're not going to get your point across to. He's going to get his point across to us. Um, but um, so what does the article have to say about Don Cherry? Let's do that first. Um, it's it's tough to say. Like when you're talking about culture, like it can get into like vague territory, vague land, where everything is just sort of like you can just say stigma and masculinity and go from there. Um, but the... She says, like, quote, um, hockey players face pressure to maintain a level of perceived cultural masculinity or just suck it up. Um, sometimes, especially when you get up to, like, the WHL level, when you're, you know, one step away from the NHL, basically, there's even more pressure. There's financial pressure there or perceived financial pressure to stay in the lineup. And with concussions, it's tricky. As I mentioned earlier, when you get a few, you're more likely to get more. So as a junior hockey player, you have an incentive, a real incentive to hide the number of concussions you've had because you'll be seen as, and they use this word intentionally, you'll be seen as soft. Like your brain is literally softened from concussions. Because as I mentioned, the, the nerves that get split, like your brain is, is more mushy. That's why you get more concussions. Right. So to protect their potential future career, they don't disclose uh, potentially traumatic brain injuries. Yes. And when you have a number of like WHL players, what, between the ages of like 16 and maximum 19? Yeah. Um, that's the age range. That's junior hockey. Um, they they play for teams and these teams are usually in small communities where this is kind of like all they got for entertainment 
So there's a real financial incentive for the community and those teams to have these underpaid players, uh, if they're paid at all, mm. um, um, get them back out there. And most of these players are not from these communities, right? So they're billeted with families that, you know, like they might be cool. It might not be. Who knows, right? Yeah. Maybe they're just season ticket holders. Right. Yeah, so there's a whole economics of sports that we can delve into that but, yeah. also collides with um the medical field of um you know concussions. Um so Matt, uh you know, you've been talking a little bit about how concussions have been framed in the past. Um how are they you know, and then you read that description about how it, it, it kind of changed. The definition of, has changed, actually. But, you know, what else can you tell us about how concussions are being framed today or being spoken about today? Okay, um, I'll do that by way of a quote from the the author's uh, brother. Um, his concussions were, I guess, 15 years ago or so. Um, uh, and this is um, one about his last concussion. Um, so the last concussion I had in hockey was a fight. Um, I honestly don't remember a whole lot. I think a lot of those things have sort of been lost. What I do remember is feeling that I wasn't okay, that I had a concussion, or it wasn't okay that I was hurt. I remember asking myself, should I go back out there? Should I keep playing? There was no specific person or coach or trainer that said to me, but it very much felt that way. It did not feel like it was okay that I had a problem. I took all of my gear off and sat on the bus alone. No monitor, nobody there to check up on me or see what was going on. Nobody watching to see if my situation declined. It was a very lonely time. So this happens still today. Some physicians and parents and coaches and things still think the treatment for concussions is to put somebody in a dark room. Um, alone and just sort of recover in darkness but the loneliness that comes with it, with that and being isolated socially isolated is what leads to the mental health concerns around um, concussion a lot of physicians will try to look at hormones and people's diet and all this sort of thing but it's really like being stuck inside because it's just too damn sunny out right and this loneliness uh, as you kind of mentioned can lead into some probably very severe mental health situations. Um, you mentioned something about hormones. Um, it seems to me that when you start messing around with your brain, when you start having these injuries, uh, the natural flow of hormones, the natural flow of chemicals in our, in our brain is going to be altered. Um, what, what, what sort of stuff is happening? Do you know if anything is happening on that front right now? Yeah, so when I was doing my research, of course, it was um, qualitative. So I did interviews with athletes and physicians, but I also did extensive literature review. And there was no real qualitative studies out there. There's a real scarcity. Um, but there was starting to be a lot more research from the medical field, various branches of the medical field on this. So endocrinology, um, the study of hormones. Um, I think that's fascinating. Um, some research, especially with male athletes, talks about um, testosterone levels and the thought that a brain injury has a correlation, which is actually a really important word, correlation. Yeah. They try to draw a correlation between brain injury and hormone level. Um, my 
argument that I, I just make to people is that whether or not somebody has a depleted testosterone level is probably because they have a concussion and they haven't been physically active. And we know that physical activity can directly increase your testosterone level. That's why when you're trying to get pregnant, um, go for a run every once in a while and that should help. Um, I think the same thing happens with athletes. So I'm not too sure about testosterone. I think it's also possibly an excuse to do testosterone replacement therapy, which is like doing HGH and steroids, right. that sort of thing. Um, the other um, thing I think is important with um, hormones that just sort of popped into my head right now, I never really thought of this, but as I mentioned, I've been in car accidents and things, so whiplash injuries are really common in, in concussion. Um, and we know, is that your thyroid up in your neck? Is that right? There's a really important gland in your neck. I think yeah. it's the thyroid yeah. gland. Um, and there's some really important glands up there where you would get impacts from like a concussion event. And I wonder if there's a structural disruption to glands in the neck because of whiplash that we might mm. be able to correlate more effectively to concussions. Interesting. Wow. Well, if, if anybody out there... Uh, has a, a a potential answer to that we'd love to hear from you yeah uh, you know we are social science scholars uh mm -hmm. interested in the social sciences so we approach medicine uh, a little bit differently than a medical practitioner but we'd love to hear from a medical practitioner in the field uh who could have some insight into that um so just you know shoot us an email um send us that kind of message um matt uh I have a, a few statistics here um, that I'd like to, to read to you. Um, so the first one um, is that in high school sports played by both girls and boys, girls are about 50% more likely to get a concussion. That's according to a recent U.S. study. The, the second, so let's just keep that hmm. in mind. The highest rates of concussion are found in football. That's uh, about 9.2 concussions per 10,000 participations. Boys lacrosse, that's at 6.6 .6 per 10,000. Sorry, 9.2 per 10,000? I cannot yeah. believe that for football. For high school football, it, I cannot believe that number. It seems a bit low. That's the that's the that's just as a pause. That's the issue with reporting right there and that's yeah. what makes studying concussions effectively as like an academic regardless of your field so difficult is because people just won't report them yeah yeah no i can you know um seems a bit low um and 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 boys lacrosse 6.6 .6 per 10,000 and then girls soccer 6.1 per 10,000 yeah, and girls, um, girls soccer, and we use the term they're girls because we're talking about high school players in those numbers. Is that right? Yeah, these are from a recent U.S. study of high school yeah. uh, sport participants. Yeah, so girl and boys um, denote age there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, this is one of the ways you can study the cultural dynamics of concussion um, is by looking at gender. It's something that I didn't really delve into too much in my research, but um, statistics like this make me think that I should have. Um, I did some reading on um, girls' concussions, um, and there's a lot of, like, I don't know, there's, there's a number of reasons why these numbers are higher for girls than boys. Um, where, 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 what do you think? Yeah, well, I think... I, I got a lot of theories. Yeah, so I, think re I think reporting is a big one. Mm. Um, these are obviously reported cases. Um, 
I think there's still okay. So I, I'm just gonna come out and be my critiquey self. I think there's a perception that girls who play sports uh, are somewhat weaker. This comes through in some of these studies when I read stuff like, well, you know, maybe girls, uh, you know, women's uh, mechs are less um, developed than boys, so therefore they can't withstand hits as much and all this kind of stuff. That, that, that actually, sorry, that comes up a lot in the research. I just got really excited and flailed my arms around because I was hoping he was going to say that. I was going to say that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, the other... the, the other. You, sorry, what do you think about that, though? That's because that's a tricky one to argue because they're compared to like a 18 year old jacked up like uh, offensive lineman in football compared to, I don't know, some other like quote unquote girl like uh, like yeah. it's a difficult conversation to have. Right. Well, the problem is that it's really hard to get away from generalities in those conversations. And, um, you know, I don't know about you, but I put on a T-shirt the wrong way and I strain my shoulder so does that like what does that have to say about body construction there's certain points in the body that are extremely um i'm not even going to use the word weak but vulnerable mm. um regardless of your other physical composition so sure you could have you know 16 17 year old boys uh who can maybe lift more than their colleagues who are girls but that doesn't mean that they're built to withstand shocks uh in a different way uh, because you have big arms and big calves doesn't mean that you can take a kick to the face better mm-hmm. than someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other the other kind of issue that I have about those claims to gender differences and concussions is they always come back and say, well, girls don't play the same sports. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but when I've watched women's soccer, it is brutal. Because, see... They play the same sports, but they don't play the sports the same way. The perception is that girls' sports is like, like just like weaker or something. Oh, I don't know, like you know, like, like not competitive or something. Nah, like you know, no, that's the public perception. I, I, right? I know, and yeah. I'm I'm pissed off with those things because yeah. girls' yeah. sports is as competitive. It's as fun to watch. It's as fun to play. Uh, it's as fun to coach. If ever you get a chance to coach a, a girls' team. It's as good, if not better, than any male solo played sports. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's the, maybe I'm biased in, in thinking that. But um, there's a systemic attack uh, of girls wanting to succeed in team sports that has nothing to do with their physical composition, has nothing to do with their ability, and has everything to do with how uh, women are treated, how women are framed as competitors, how you know all that stuff. And we can, you know dive into that a whole lot more but, but it's true it's, it's true like i uh, obviously 100 percent agree with you and uh sometimes i'll just play the the devil's advocate to um to just do so um but uh yes of course and um but you can see the structural uh inequalities um at play um in the fact that there is no real professional leagues for women um the closest thing there is is obviously um like the mls the the soccer league um i know in vancouver they would play uh the two games like almost like a double header um but always the women were first right so it's like the less desirable spot it's like the 4 p.m spot and then the men play at seven it's like the show opener yeah absolutely there's some sideshow actually and that's how um women's sports actually is is treated often is the sideshow and then if you have all those 
structural and cultural barriers in front and also real interactions with coaches and and spectators i suppose booing you for no reason all these pressures to not play and you have to prove yourself every single time you go out there what happens if you get a concussion right like are you going to report that are you going to sacrifice your opportunity because honestly um girls in high school they're they're playing for college scholarships yeah. And usually they're partial. They're like 25% or something like that. They're horrendous scholarship opportunities. Yeah. And that's the best they can hope for. And they, they put themselves, their brain health in, in jeopardy by, for what, a 25% scholarship? Yeah. Well, it comes back to the economics of, of sports again, um, which is, you know, a, another discussion mm-hmm. I think we can have, but all this kind of plays into it. Um, Matt, do you want to... Um, Okay, so moving, not forgetting, but moving to uh, so just another switching of gears, the many topics. <laughs> sw- switching gears yeah. a bit. Uh, you, you. I think you wanted to talk to us a little bit more um, about neuroscience. <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, I'm going to talk to you about neurophysiology. This is an anthropologist <laughs> talking uh, about neurophysiology to a sociologist. <laughs> I don't. We'll see how this goes. I might have a lot of questions. No, try to keep the big words to a. Uh, try to be whimsical. The whimsical. I'll, I'll try. The best thing is, is the one of the biggest words I'm going to use is only four letters long. Axon. So there you go. Axon. Okay. And axon. Is, okay, okay. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's not the. All right. Uh, see you next week. Okay. Yeah. All right. What What is an axon? Um. Okay. So the axon is the connection of the nerve cell between from one end to the the other. Um and it's it's what connects the the two nerve cells is at one end. And I believe it's called the dendrils at the other and then there's the the um the middle part. I there's I'll spare you the details. It's a quick Google search if anyone wants to do it. Um just look up an image of like nerve cell basically. Um but what this article uh uh brings up it's it's from Penn State. So it's about their own research actually. I didn't notice that until just right now. <laughs> Um, but that makes sense. Um, in my master's research, I identified a couple of universities. One was Boston University, and they're the ones who do the autopsies on the football players' brains, basically. Uh, you and, can donate uh, to Boston University, I yeah, believe, right? Yeah, like I've donated, I've agreed to donate my brain to science when I pass away, so that they could do a post mortem autopsy on it and. Uh, study my brain tissue basically and do we have anything do you know if we have anything similar like that in canada yeah that's actually thanks for um reminding me um there's a a similar uh project out of the university of toronto their medical uh school um exact same idea they obviously because it's in canada they have more hockey players but it's the same program um as i mentioned before it this is difficult to study physiologically uh for scientists and um um, doctors, um, because the damage happens in, at this axonal level and the actual nerve cells in the middle of the brain. So what this article um, talks about is um, basically this process that um, when the nerve cell gets severed, um, the brain, through this concept called neuroplasticity, 
um, adapts and creates new nerve pathways. Um, just as a side, they used to think that, you know, your brain stops growing when you're like 19. Um, that's, that's a myth. Um, your brain constantly grows throughout your life. Um, but as your brain gets damaged or as you age, um, new pathways open up, but the old pathways sort of die off. Right. And this is where the plaque and the damage of Alzheimer's and dementia comes from is not only these parts dying away, but your brain actually creating new pathways. So the crazy double-edged sword is um, that through recovery, you're also sustaining damage. Um, there's um, I, there's a couple of quotes here that I'll just read, and it kind of sums it up, and then we'll just wrap up. Um, when the brain switches streams and creates a new pathway... Um, quote, it's costly metabolically and it's costly with respect to how quickly you think. One of the primary cognitive deficits in all neurological disorders, multiple sclerosis, traumatic brain injury, schizophrenia, is impairments in how quickly you can think, called processing speed. In neurological disorders, processing speed diminishes and it can be related to a decrease in brain efficiency. So it's the brain is almost using its computing power to create these new pathways because damage has been done to the old pathways. And um, here's a nice, like, sort of layperson's quote. Um, Just as inefficient motors tend to pollute more, inefficient neural connections may build up harmful deposits that can further impair the brain. Although other factors, such as genetics, are likely involved, the researchers noted that higher deposits of amyloid beta, a marker of Alzheimer's disease, see my research, are often located at sites where there is the highest connectivity. Where there is a lot of action going on, it increases metabolical byproducts, and if you don't clear them, they collect. So it's this accumulation of, they call it plaque, that leads to like Alzheimer's and dementia, heavy activation, Heavy connectivity can put pressure on network hubs, and that's why those hubs are some of the first to go in Alzheimer's. So it's almost like the circuits are being overloaded on these new pathways, and that's why you see a rapid decline decline in um, cognition in Alzheimer's patients. So I um, basically all these articles are going to be posted in the show notes, and I encourage you to read them and learn more, and also you know get in touch with us. Yeah, and I want to pick up on, uh, I want to lead the discussion uh, to some current affairs, some some stuff that has happened uh, recently around uh, the NFL, particular Aaron Hernandez, um, probably heard about it. Um, but before we do that, I'm going to try to play a clip uh, from Don Cherry, who uh, quote unquote rips uh, the new soft NHL. But your brethren, uh, Don, uh, obviously it started with Derek Bugard, Rick yep. Rippon, and Wade Belak. The feeling was that the, in all three cases there's a connection that they yep. were dealing with demons caused by their... Is that uh, ridiculous? I'll tell you one thing there. You people that are against fighting, you should be ashamed of yourself. You took advantage of that to make your point on fighting. You should be ashamed of yourself doing something like that. I did a little research. 
since 19, uh, uh, 1999, there's been eight guys commit suicide, and there were not one of them was a fighter. And when I played, I remember four guys uh, committing suicide. Not one of them was a fighter. But you jumped on this with both feet. You should have been ashamed of yourself. But the ones that I am really disgusted with, and I hate to say this when the kids are listening, with George LaRock said about the bunch of pukes that fought before Stu Grimson, Chris Nyland and Jim what's Thompson, the reason, oh, the reason that they're drinking uh, drugs and alcoholics because they fight. You turncoats, you hypocrites, there's one thing I'm not is a hypocrite. You guys, you were fighters, and now you don't want guys that make the same living you did. Don Cherry in the Coach's Corner on Hockey Night in Canada. On... Wow. Wow. <laughs> Took the words right out of my mouth, Phil. Um... Okay, so that's Don Cherry, Coach's Corner, speaking um, sometime in 2011, um, late September, early October. Um, now, fast forward to April 2017, and we have another suicide, this time coming from the NFL, not the NHL, but of Aaron Hernandez. Um, it's somewhat speculated that um, Aaron Hernandez had some some form of traumatic brain injury um in 2016 uh, a study published by the canadian medical association journal um, counted three times as many suicides among patients who had suffered concussions than the general population and they analyzed data for over 200,000 patients over a 20-year period um, an earlier study found 400,000 United States veterans who sought care from the Veteran Health Administration um, found that patients with a history of traumatic brain injury were nearly twice as likely to die by suicide than those without such an injury. And a 2001 Danish study of nearly 150,000 people published in the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry also found a higher suicide rate among people with traumatic brain injuries. Those researchers attributed that higher rate to quote the physical, psychological, and social consequences of injuries. Matt, this week, Hernandez joins the list of past NFLers, including uh, Jovan Belcher, Ray Easterling, Dave Duerson, Andre Waters, Junior So, and Rashan Salem. What do you think is going on here? Don Cherry clearly thinks that if you're a fighter, you're not going to get brain injuries. I think he's full of shit. Hmm. We have scientific studies that are much more accurate than his little research of whatever <laughs> the past 15 years have shown. It's like the first time he's been on Google. Yeah. Um, uh, Boston University's Alzheimer's Disease Center, the last stat I'm going to give. The center found evidence of CTE, so that's chronic traumatic uh, encephalopathy, and encephalopathy? <laughs> it, uh, CTE. Can, I, can I see it? Uh, can you just point to it on the page? Uh, and so, and I so always cephalop- mispronounce it. Encephalopathy. 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 So CTE. So Boston University researchers have found evidence of CTE in 90 of the 94 brains that have been given to them uh, to look at of former professional football players it has studied. Uh, and this is th- th- this is what they're saying right now what it means is there's a link between the types of hits that some football players experience and the development of this brain disease later in life um and i think that 
one of the last words you said there, the types of hits these players receive. So there's um, like the huge hits in the NFL that you will see in all the highlight reels of receivers getting laid out by safeties and, and things like this. Um, sure, those you'll get a concussion from something like that, but it's also the repetitive um, lower level, quote unquote, uh, trauma that you receive that leads to the long term um, ramifications of having a history of concussion. So this is why we see a lot of concussions in soccer. It's actually from heading the ball in practice. Um, so sure, you can head like across from somebody occasionally, but by practicing it over and over and over again, hitting balls off the top of your head is like you're having a sparring match. So a lot of football drills. Um, kind of encourage this repetitive head trauma. Matt, uh, I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question. Is this the type of head trauma, recurring, low-level, repeated head trauma that someone who fights would receive? Yeah, yeah, I would, I would say so. So then what the fuck is Cherry doing, coming out and saying, no, all you whatever words he used to, to, to call us those people who don't want to get brain injuries. Uh, turncoats and hypocrites. Well, yeah, hypocrites. <laughs> well, tell that to Aaron Hernandez. Mm. And some would say, I don't know. Okay, so this is Matt being the devil's advocate again, just trying to see from the other perspective, even Don Cherry's. Um, some would argue that the removal of fighting and the enforcer role from the NHL has led to more concussions in that there's no ramifications for drilling a guy from behind. Sure, but that's not what he's talking about right now. What he's talking about right now is the elimination of fighting in the NHL um, linked to suicides. So what he's talking about is that there have been uh, people who have come out that, that say that brain injuries uh, sustained by fighters lead uh, to a disproportionate amount of suicides, uh, not to mention depression, drug, drug problems, and all that sort of thing that these fighters are experiencing. And, and Don Cherry saying, no, well, from my personal experience playing, being behind the bench, I don't know of any guys who are fighters who committed suicide. It was the non-fighters who committed suicide. Okay, so first of all, if, uh, you know, suicide is a is a problem but it is a fact uh so i think cherry is kind of uh, missing the point my argument would be that uh playing uh these sorts of violent sports at a high level for a long period of time is like in some ways can be thought of as a slow suicide because many of these fighters i i would put money on it know the know a lot of the risks they have coming in sure the long term the CTE is a new thing, um, it leading to dementia, Alzheimer's, those are new, and even suicide is a new development in the research. But I think, um, I think Don Cherry is full of shit, basically. Yeah, and yeah, okay, so we'll agree on that. Oh, and can I, sorry, the, the point that I forgot and now just remembered, um, the other thing about suicide is there's never one cause for a suicide. Right. This is the classic uh, Durkheim suicide study. Right. This is why people have a problem with that is because it's like if you commit suicide, you did so because of one of these like four reasons um, or, or whatever those those categories were of suicide types. Um, what Don Cherry is doing there is saying that these I don't know, they, they committed suicide because they did drugs or something. I think he might have mentioned or that they're just whatever sad or something yeah. like he had no yeah. actual explanation no, no explanation he's just like no 
Just no. Flat out no. I mean, he's a guy who wants there to be fighting in the league, probably for the spectacle. Um, but to continue on to your point, you're absolutely correct, Matt. Uh, in, you know, in, incarcerated people take their lives at a higher rate than the general population. Um, those who have uh, forms of mental illness, such as depression, uh, severe anxiety, uh, take their lives at a disproportionate amount to the general population. And I hate saying that a disproportionate amount to the general population, like as if the general population doesn't suffer from, uh, you know, mental illness and anxiety issues mm-hmm. and all those sorts of things. But that's, that's how the stats are talked about. But, um, but you know, and suicide prevention advocates also caution against searching for a single answer to why a person uh, took his or her life. Uh, so you're right. There's never a single cause uh, for suicide. However, when you have multiple uh, potential factors that can contribute, what you see is almost uh, almost like a, a snowballing of stuff. So you have someone who is under a lot of pressure to perform uh, daily, uh, someone who is sustaining those low impact or sometimes medium or high impact uh, hits to their head, uh, someone who... You know, professional athletes' diets are all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, depending on where they are in their training um, schedule, mm-hmm. you have all these things coming together. So you have almost like a perfect storm for this to happen. And and, and yes, I know you're going to tell me they know the risks coming into it. Of course, um, no, they know some risks. They know some they risks. Know some risks, and they're learning more of the risk, but they don't know all the risks. Of I, course I not. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But but I, I agree. And and in Another thing is um, what happens post-playing career, right? The the leaving the game is like a huge field of research that, that should be done. I called it in my research, hanging up the skates because we're yeah. Canadian. Yeah. But, um, but when you, you leave the game and you're just sitting around for a couple of years and now what? Yeah. And that's like classic like Durkheim. That's like the, isn't that like Anomie or something? I only know this because I t- uh, TA'd like Sociology 100. Right. But it's basically like not feeling connected to groups and sort of being alone like an island yeah. all by yourself. And it, or financial, like hell, they, they, people could just be broke and they, people make a financial decision sometimes when they sure. commit suicide. Sure. I think there's, um, a parallel to be drawn with veterans. There's a parallel to be drawn with uh, first responders. There's a parallel to be drawn with um, other forms of occupation. And I think, so where I want to bring the discussion and um, we can conclude on, on, on this point is sports, professional sports is a massive industry in North America. It, brings in millions of viewers, regardless of whatever professional sport you're watching. The commentary on mental health, brain injuries, violence in those, uh, in those fields, uh, professional sports, carries over into how we view other professions and other jobs. Um, that's, my, that's what grinds my gears about it, mm-hmm. is that when you have someone saying no low-level repetitive uh, hits to the brain has no correlation to suicide. What what you're going to say is, well, the firefighter who is getting low level hits to the head uh, his whole career who commits suicide. Well, there's no link. But science, the studies are showing us that there can be a link. So mm-hmm. we have to stop using sport concussed 
cases in isolation and silo, look at them in the broader uh, literature, look at it with a, a more holistic perspective um, to start understanding what's going on. That's, that's, that's my, do you, do you have anything <laughs> else to add, Matt? I'll, I'll... No, but this is definitely a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And I'm sure we're going to be returning to it in future episodes. I, for one, would love to talk about sport and the wider culture, the media and how that impacts our daily lives. So yeah, definitely we're going to be returning uh, to the, the discussion. And we want to hear your stories um, about anything we've spoken about uh, on this episode. Uh, to do so, we want you to email us at semiintellectual at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at the underscore SIM underscore pod. That's the underscore SIM underscore pod. And you'll be able uh, to check out our posts very soon on uh, Podbean Network. And we're at the sim, all one word, the sim.podbean.com. So send us your stories. Um, we want to hear. Uh, what you think about our take on uh, concussions and sports. Uh, maybe we got something wrong. Um, you know, I don't know if Matt's uh, description of the neuroscience behind it. I need help on that. So if you want to help us. Yeah. Uh, like if you're a young neuroscience student and you got some articles you want to pass along. We'd or, love to, or, love know, to hear from you. Want to be on an interview perhaps? <laughs> oh. Yeah. Putting the call out there. If you have an expertise that you think would uh, contribute to the discussion, you can mention that in your email as well. Yeah, give us a shout, and uh, we can uh, we'll, we'll set something up. Hey, we're back, and we're here with some recommendations for you. Uh, Matt, what do you got for us this week? Um, just one recommendation. I want to recommend a podcast I've been listening to for the last like year and a half. It's called The Dollop. And the I Dollop. Will, yes, and I will spell that out. Um, the is spelled T-H-E, and Dollop is spelled D-O-L-L-O-P. 1992 <laughs> okay there gary <laughs> i like the dollop as well yeah i love it it's basically a um whimsical treatment of history Boom. nice <laughs> um yeah it's it's like a fun take on history um the history in the dollop is all like factually correct it's researched either by the host dave anthony and uh his co-host gareth reynolds is like from the improv world he's like an improv comedian and um and he doesn't know anything about history and he doesn't know anything about the story going in so he just sort of reacts to it and um i love it i've learned a lot actually someone who's really into history and i know you are as well that's why we both listen to the dollop yeah i've been listening to the dollop not not quite as long as you have but mm. um yeah i thoroughly enjoy it it's the interjection of uh, humor uh with maybe not so humorous uh kind of histories that make it really appealing yeah and they have uh, I think they're approaching their 300th episode, so there's quite a, a lot to get through. They're either half an hour or an hour long, but just a couple of recommendations on particular episodes to get you started. Um, I really enjoyed uh, episode 150. It's called James Sullivan and the 1904 Games. 1904! <laughs> 
And then another one that I also like that's sports related um, is episode 250. It's called uh, Phantom of the Open. So it's all about the British Open and this like awful golfer who kept like changing his name and getting into the Open. He just sucked. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, it's great. Two uh, really good episodes, but like I I can't remember an episode that I haven't enjoyed. So I yeah. hope you do too. Uh, my recommendation uh is actually musical this week. I've been really digging uh, an artist by the name of Bonobo. Been around for a while. Um, kind of plays uh, electronic, uh, down-tempo. Um, you know, if you're familiar with words like trip-hop, uh, drum and bass, uh, this is that, that sort of music. Um, but I'm really, really liking his 2013 album uh, called The North Borders. Uh, here's a little sample of uh, Don't Wait. Yeah, so, um, you know, this kind of stuff uh, really gets you relaxing, gets you in the mood. I love uh, writing to it. I love reading to it. Um, that's Bonobo. So that's all I got for recommendations. Sounds good. All right. Thanks a lot for uh, being with us. Uh, this past week uh, we look forward to hearing from you again you can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com you can tweet us at the simpod uh, that's the underscore sim underscore pod and you'll be able to find the podcast very soon on thesim.podbean.com that's thesim.podbean.com see you all next week talk soon